This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Tim Capon from Bloomberg on Apple supply chain. We shed light on the tech schedule in how Apple and their suppliers such as Foxconn, TSMC, and Samsung operate before the major launch of their products in September. Hi, Tim. Bernard, nice to talk to you. How are you doing? Fantastic. It's been a very busy few months, so it's good to to have a chance to talk to you again and catch up. Yes, and we met up last week when I was visiting Taiwan, and I'm talking to Tim Kapan, columnist at Bloomberg Gadfly. So Tim, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Well, more of uh, my writing column work and writing my opinion and analysis of the Asia tech industry. The one thing that's really occupied a lot of my time in the last few months has been these parade of Asian business leaders heading to the US, to New York or DC to meet with President Donald Trump and his team. And so I spent a lot of time trying to shed a light on the realities versus the perceptions of, of what really may be happening there and what these Asian business leaders may really be offering uh, Donald Trump and his administration. So specifically, you're also covering some of the interesting investments that are ongoing in the China tech scene as well, particularly with what Tencent and Alibaba are doing, at least with the ride sharing, at least with bike sharing as well. Exactly. I don't like to use the term bike sharing because it's really bike rental, but I know what you mean. Offo and Mobike, wow, crazy valuations, crazy companies, crazy business models. And you just need to go online and Google Offo or Mobike and you'll see photo after photo of piles of rented bikes that are just being left by the side of the road. So it's quite an amazing thing happening there. Well, this year's the VC subsidy is about free bicycles. So I'm okay with that since I've been seeing a lot of them are downstairs under my flight in Singapore. I want to come to the conversation that we have when we met up last week and we want to talk about the iPhone supply chain in Asia. Just turns out that today is actually when Apple gave out their 2017 Q2 earnings. So I'm going to do a very quick summary of what happened. They basically announced that they have an active install base of iPhones that grew by double digits year on year. Their services revenue now top $7 billion, basically being a size of a Fortune 100 company. The Apple Watch, AirPods and Beats wearable sales are actually already of the size of a Fortune 500 company, I guess is in the billions scale. And of course, ended quarter with $256 billion in cash. Of course, 93% of it are actually outside the US. But what I thought was interesting was the iPhone average selling price was $655, up from $642 in the same period a year ago, meaning that the growth for the iPhones have actually plateaued, meaning that it's actually difficult to grow more users to buy iPhones, but actually instead extracting a higher lifetime value per customer. Yeah, what we're seeing, and, and my uh, colleague Shira Overday, who's based in New York, has written about this as well. But we've noticed that essentially the top end, when we're talking about the top in Samsung's or Apple's or even Huawei's, prices are rising, not falling. Now, we've always thought of the competition at the bottom end, Xiaomi being most famous for forcing prices down. But you're right, people are actually willing to pay more money for an iPhone these days. And this is interesting because every September, Apple will launch the latest iPhone model worldwide. And typically, the rumor mill will start from the December of the past year until to that time and in Asia as we all know the secretive Ming Chi Kuo from KG Securities happened to be in Taiwan where you live will make some guesses of the upcoming features of the iPhone models from the supply chains so uh, my first question just as an intro is how many different suppliers are involved in making an iPhone then? 
Well, the supply chain really is the good hint that analysts like Guo Mingqi and even reporters, myself when I was a reporter, Mark Gurman, now Bloomberg, followed the suppliers to try and find out where things are going and what's going to happen. In fact, what's interesting, Bernard, is that there is you know, more than 200 separate suppliers to Apple. They have manufacturing or delivery sites at more than 700 places around the world. Most of that is in Asia. But in fact, the Apple supply chain report includes a supplier list and they list the top 200 suppliers, which accounts for about 97% of all the components and the value of the components that goes into their supply chain, not just iPhones, but you know, the Mac the other products as well. So it's very, very long and extensive list. And when you talk about these suppliers, we'll be supplying things like the uh, Gorilla Glass or the Sapphire Glass or maybe the components, the semiconductor chips within the iPhone itself or maybe with the Mac, the CPU from Intel. Are that the list of suppliers usually? Exactly. You'll see, for example, you'll see the name Qualcomm on the list. You'll see TSMC, the Taiwanese company on the list. Of course, you'll see Honhai Precision on the list many, many times. Honhai is the flagship of Foxconn Group. The word Megatron appears on the list a few times. Quite a lot of different names, many of which are quite famous, but quite a lot of you've never heard of before. So if you really want to come across a few new names that you may have never heard of, you grab the supply chain list. It's, it's all there online on Apple's website. And it's quite a fascinating read if you're kind of a supply chain geek like I am. Well, that comes to my next point. Apple is very secretive, yet it's very unique in opening up its list of suppliers and putting up metrics recently to measure their suppliers. Why does it do this and what can we learn from these lists then? You're right. It's a bit of a juxtaposition that it's such a secretive company, yet they are willing to publish a list of their suppliers, not just the, the names of suppliers. They actually have the location, the street address of exactly where these facilities are. So that's pretty unique and quite unusual. But the reason why all the secrecy that surrounds Apple, they are actually trying very hard to be more and more open when it comes to, you know, those kinds of CSR things. And one of which is supply chain responsibility, labor standards, environmental protection, and so forth, because they're really trying to lead the way and show the world that they're leading the way in these corporate social responsibility areas. And so part of that is really about opening the doors and saying, hey, this is what we're up to. This is who we are. These are the facilities that we audit and kind of make it all open to the public. So it's a little bit weird and a little bit unusual. But if you think of it, the, the, the other side of Apple, which is to try and be a better international corporate citizen, then, you know, it kind of makes sense. So it's more of actually bolster its own brand image. And of course, in turn, the iPhone customers will not be drawn to a lot of controversy. I mean, a few years ago, they had the controversies of people having suicides in the Foxconn factory and also some of the materials that, that might be used that is environmentally unfriendly. I think Apple has spent a significant effort to actually get rid of all these issues to come to this point. They've got very large teams at Apple that are in charge of these kinds of areas such as environmental protection, uh, labor and supply chain standards, all those things. They spend a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy on trying to, to do better at these things. They're not perfect. They never claim to be perfect. And of course, they do get a lot of criticism from activists, from media and so forth. And that's kind of part of that process of them trying to be better and everyone else trying to push them to be even better than they are. 
you know, Apple clients, uh, customers, and, and really all of the stakeholders in Apple expect a lot from Apple and they expect a lot from themselves. So it becomes that vicious cycle, a virtuous cycle of, you know, them opening up and pushing harder and then other people coming back and saying, but how about this? You need to do better on that. And it just keeps going. And year after year, they try and clean up their act just that little bit more. Particularly this year for Earth Day, I think one of the vice president who's in charge of this initiative, Lisa Jackson, actually went on John Gruber's podcast to talk about Apple's corporate social responsibility with regards to the environment. But can you tell me more about the relationship that Apple has with its suppliers? Well, it's a little bit different to the way they do with other suppliers. The supplier-client relationship always has to be close. It's not like you you get on the phone and say, hey, I want a thousand of these delivered to my factory door by tomorrow. You really have to know exactly what they've got, the, the supplier has got, what capabilities they have and what they can do for you. With Apple, it's a little bit even more special because they really insist on a lot of their own specs. It's not a company that basically looks at a catalog and says, well, these are the components available. We'll just make a product based on that. They actually have a team of scientists that go around the world and they look for new technologies, new techniques, new minerals even, and see what's available. And then they go even further and say, well, you know, what production techniques are required to make this happen? And they all discover new things and even, of course, write up patents and apply for patents years before these products or techniques or technologies or components would ever be used in a device. And a lot of what they discover along the way is never put into a device, but it's part of that broad research project they have going. And then when it comes down to the supplies itself, they work very, very closely and they tend to insist on their own specifications for their components all the way going and getting their own SKUs, their own stock-keeping units. So if you're a Qualcomm or an Intel or whatever, you know, the chip that you're selling to Apple will be unique to Apple and it wouldn't be the same chip that they would sell to anybody else. And they also like to have more than one supplier of a component. This is very important to them. They don't like to be reliant on any one supplier. So generally speaking, for most of their components, they like to have a backup. And so in doing so, they work very, very closely with suppliers to make sure that they've got the specs they need, to make sure the supplier has the capabilities to actually supply it, not just in quantity, but also in yields so that the amount that they put through the process can come out of the other end and be a usable product. And in fact, what they do, Bernard, they actually have quite a high capex. The amount of money that they spend on capex, which is capital expenditure, is quite high, given that they don't actually manufacture a product. And the reason why it's quite high is they actually go out and buy equipment, which they put inside a supplier's factory called consignment. So this consigned equipment will put will fit inside a certain supplier's factories and they say, all right, here's the equipment that you need to make this product for us. But guess what? You can't use it for any other customer. So it's really locked up for Apple only. But they will spend that money of their own money to basically make sure that the player does have enough capacity and the right kind of capacity to supply to them. How does Apple differ from other electronic brands such as Samsung, Huawei, or the other Asian OEMs then? Well, the key difference really for Apple is that they have a longer supply chain cycle. They produce one iPhone every year. And even though there's various flavors and variations such as screen size, color, the amount of memory, it's basically a 12-month cycle. With someone like Huawei, Xiaomi and the others, they're really in a shorter cycle, you know, two or three months for, for most of their products. They usually have one flagship year, but they're bringing out products all the time. So if you win the contract for a certain Huawei or Xiaomi device, you're really only guaranteed for that three-month cycle. And you may get into the next device, but it's not guaranteed. Or they, the clients, such as Huawei or Samsung, may decide that they want 
you know, a different component. But with Apple, you pretty much get it for the whole year. And that means a lot of product for the whole year. And that means that you can get economies of scale by supplying them for the whole year. And so Apple might push you on margins, but by being able to ship that much of your component to one customer over a longer period of time, there's really a lot of benefits to the supplier as well. That also explains why Honghai Foxconn actually is captively dependent on Apple because they do most of their contract manufacturing for the iPhones. Exactly. You know, after all these years, no one's been able to match Foxconn as a supplier. Pegatron, Wistron, Compel, and some others have come online to supply iPads and iPhones and other products. But really, it's still Foxconn as the number one supplier of the assembly part of the process. And from Foxconn's point of view, they get 50% of their revenue from Apple. And they've tried over the years to diversify away from Apple to do other stuff, going as far as doing you know, robotics and software and data centers and all sorts of other things. But, you know, years later, they're still getting half of their revenue from Apple. And the reason is that they really can't do without each other. Apple is a fantastic client to have. And Foxconn really does something that no one else can do. They've got the scale, the volume, the deliverability, the reliability that no other supplier has been able to match after all these years. Which comes to my next point. Doesn't this present a risk to the suppliers if you're that dependent on Apple like Foxconn? Yeah, we've seen it actually in the last couple of months from both sides of the, you know, the issue of the supply chain. For a supplier, if Apple's your major client and they turn around and decide, hey, we don't need you anymore, then that company is going to be in trouble. An example of this, Dialog Semiconductor in Europe, they do power management chips. So, you know, you get their chips and you put it in your device like an iPad or a Mac or an iPhone. It helps manage the supply of the power. An analyst report just a few weeks ago came out and said, well, you know, under, for, according to what we know, Apple's going to go and develop their own technology, their own power supply management ship within uh, their own devices. And Dialog Semiconductor's shares fell because that basically means that Apple won't need them anymore. Imagination Tech, which is a British company, does certain types of graphics chips technology. And they basically came out publicly and said, well, you know, we know that Apple is going to wean themselves off us over the next few years because it looks like Apple's going to develop their own technology. So again, Imagination Tech took a really big hit there because they were so dependent on Apple for so long. And Apple just, you know, realized that they don't need them. They've developed their own technologies and they don't need them anymore. But the flip side for Apple is that if they've got a supplier that does something that they can't get anywhere else, then they're really on the hook for them. And we've seen a few examples of this. The most famous example recently is, of course, Samsung. We're understanding right now that Apple's plans to have an OLED screen for their iPhones this year won't be fully borne out. They'll have to keep with LCD for at least some of the models because Samsung really is the major supplier of OLED displays. There is a few out there, but no one can really do it in the volume and the quality and the reliability of Samsung. And so Apple has basically had to kind of change its, its plan and limit the amount of OLED that it's going to put in its various devices. And so they're really on the hook there. And then there's other areas. For example, if you, if you think back a few years ago, Scratchgate, you know, the, the back of the phone, it was a metal casing. It was scratched. And so Apple had to go back and say, let's do it a little bit differently. And what happened was that they got held up. They couldn't ship enough of their products because they couldn't get metal casings from their suppliers. So you had half-built uh, iPhones without the back casing sitting on shelves waiting for the metal casing to be delivered to the factory door. And that really hurt their sales and their, their shipment of products. So Apple does also lose out when that relationship is too close and too reliant. So now it's 
May 2017. So we expect the next iPhone around September 2017. Can you sort of give a picture what is actually happening right now with Apple and its suppliers? Yeah, so now is a fascinating time. I've covered quite a few cycles of the iPhone. So I, I've got a bit of an idea of, of how it all comes together. Essentially, years out, they start looking at various designs and they look at the various technologies they've got. And of course, we know Johnny Ive is the chief designer and so much goes through through really what he decides. And previously, Steve Jobs, now Tim Cook, they basically get together, they brainstorm. But now in, we're talking early May now, and we believe that the next iPhone will be September. We're hearing rumors that might be delayed a little bit later or one of them models may be delayed but we're basically four months out there's so many different parts that go into the iphone so right now what will be happening is that apple themselves will be working with their suppliers i'll be having very long hours very long days and nights in china going around the various realize to make sure that they have the supply of the product and they'll be doing test production which is basically very manual They'll get all the pieces of the together and they put it together and they see how it works. Does it fit together well? It'll be very low level, low, not a lot. Then they'll put these phones together and they'll test for a lot of software testing, which is, you know, running various kind of diagnostics through the device to make sure that it all functions as they, I'll have some of the devices out in the hands of their, their own uh, employees. And then as they go through that process, they'll tweak it. They may find that a certain component isn't quite acting the way they wanted to, so they'll or, you know, really tweak. And then they'll ramp up and they'll basically instead of doing you know one at a time they'll try and do 10 at a time 20 at a time 50 at a time 100 at a time and as they go through this process week after week ramping up production they'll be testing all the way along and so as they test all the way along they'll be looking for weaknesses in the way the manufacturing process is done they'll be tweaking the manufacturing process so that they can tell the assemblers how to make it more efficient the chip to tweak any designs there and during this process that's when they really will be working with the suppliers to make sure the supplier can A, supply exactly the as they need it, the specification. B, can they supply in the volume that they need, which is going to be very important. The third one, and this is really, really important, is yield. So for every 100 units of product or componentry or material going in to make a component, they want to have as close to 100 come out at the other end that is usable, quality control, and is a good product. Because if you've got really high capacity at low yield, that's not very good. You need to make sure that you've got the yield. So if Apple discovers somewhere along that process that any of their suppliers have a weakness, that there's a king in the chain, then they will work with that supplier to try and sort it out. It may mean buying more equipment for them or more materials or changing the process. They will work with the supplier and say, let's work out together how to make this better, make this more efficient work out where the problem is. In this process, quality control will be a key point so that they can work out where the problems fix them and also then work out how to spot errors during the mass production phase. And as we get to about June or about two to three months out and then into July, they'll be trying to really make sure that everything is sorted. So they'll be going from test production to really an early mass production. By the time they get to that stage, they really should have everything sorted out so that they'll know exactly what the recipe for baking an iPhone will be, all of the ingredients will be in place so that when the time comes, they'll be able to press the button and start delivering. And that production cycle actually happens before the announcement is made, right? So that they have enough to actually ship to the first set of customers who buy first on the Apple Store itself. Exactly. So they basically, if we say a mid-September announcement a late september launch because usually it's about 10 days between announcement and availability so about four weeks to six weeks out from that they'll really start to build and they'll slowly build and build and they'll be running lots of quality control 
to try and make sure that everything has been uh, you know sorted out so that we'll come out of the other end you know as a quality product that won't have any you know defects or any problems so yeah about four to six weeks out is when they really start ramping up so this is the part that i find a little bit uh, tricky that i actually don't understand very well how does apple actually decide demand for their products specifically for the iphone i mean in the case of apple watch and airports they underestimated the demand whereas for the iphones they manage the expectations pretty well is it just because of the manufacturing process with the suppliers or is it just apple itself couldn't get to the right set of you to actually get the products out to the market well that's an interesting question quite often what we see in analyst reports and media reports is that apple expects to sell 100 million phones this year or apple will sell us 100 million phones many times they speak as if it's a declarative statement that nine months before the products even launched they know exactly how many are going to be sold that's not quite what happens apple is basically giving a projection to their supplier saying look we need you to be ready to supply 100 million units over this period of time, which means we need to be sure that you've got enough equipment, enough materials, enough labor, and so forth. Now, that's not necessarily a bulletproof forecast, but it's really to make sure that the suppliers have got all their ducks in a row so that when time comes, they will be able to deliver. Now, what does happen, of course, is they may get it wrong and they may have too much supply, and that has happened before as well, and some of those supplies have been left hanging and other times they've fallen short where you know they didn't have the supply that they thought that they would need as in they thought that they would need maybe you know 100 units but in fact there was demand for 150 or they may have thought that they'd be able to ramp up into meeting a certain amount of units per week or per month but the ramp up didn't happen as quickly as possible that also does happen especially with some of the components the airpods and watches i believe are, are good examples of that the watch especially has so many different flavors of it, including the bands and so forth, that there's, you know, it's not that easy to predict exactly what people will want. So when people come back and say, well, Apple had supply problems or so forth, yeah, it's true. Sometimes they do have, you know, a few weaknesses in the supply chain. And so, of course, like every company in the industry, they have real-time feedback, real-time computerized ordering systems and so forth that will help predict what, you know, customers will want. But they don't have a crystal ball better than anybody else. They just get really good at trying to guess what uh, the supply chain will be needed to deliver that. So that comes to the interesting case that the rumor mill is going on with this OLED and LCD screens. I mean, many rumors have been circulated across the supply chain. So what can we infer, at least from Apple's perspective, on whether they want to adopt OLED or LCD for their phone screens. I understand you mentioned that Samsung is the largest supplier for these for the OLED screens then. Well, I'm not in a position to tell you what's exactly in the phone this year, Bernard, because uh, you know, a lot of people have already done that and I'm not going to go near that. I've been a, a columnist now for about 18 months. Bef previously, I did write about the supply chain and the products and I'm, I'm happy to say that I, I was right pretty much every time I wrote about it. But let me tell you this. What I do know is that Apple is very keen to use OLED in future products. And I also know they're very keen to use a wireless charging. I broke a story about two years ago that they're working on wireless charging. But the holdup there is the supply chain. For wireless charging, not so much the supply chain as getting the technology quite right for the implementation that they want. Wireless charging already exists in quite a lot of phones out there. But that's not quite the way Apple thinks it should happen. So Apple wants to do it their own way in a user case scenario that they think makes more sense. So I think that's what's really holding them up, the technology and the use case scenario on wireless charging. Back to OLED, clearly they need to be sure that they can get enough supply. 
because you know when a company comes out and launches a new phone and says it's going to be an OLED phone and they ship OLED, remember that's going to be like a two to four month cycle. If it's a flagship product, a bit longer, and nobody ships as many of one device as Apple does. So Apple's got to be sure that they can sell fifty or a hundred million OLED phones, which means they need to be sure they're going to get enough supply. If they're not sure of it, they're not going to launch it. So that's why they've had to kind of tweak and reevaluate their goals this year, exactly what they're going to do. So the latest information that has been reported is that there's going to be probably three models, uh, a plus size and a standard size, kind of like an S series, a 7S, and then maybe an iPhone 8. And it would be the 8 that is an OLED. That's what current reports are saying from pretty reliable sources, including some of Bloomberg's own reporters. So I think that's really what we're looking at so far. This is the part that I find it a little bit difficult for Apple. I mean, Samsung clearly leads in the OLED screens and they also have just launched their S8, which is actually OLED screens. So if they control the supply of screens, wouldn't they make their life difficult for Apple? Oh, very much could. If Samsung wanted to make Apple's life difficult, they could do so. And who knows if they haven't already? I don't know. Maybe they have. But you know what? That's exactly why Apple is now spending a lot of time and energy trying to develop their own display technology. About two years ago, I broke a story on a secret display lab in northern Taiwan. It's in Taoyuan, and you really wouldn't stumble across it. It's the middle of nowhere. But uh, a friend of mine who's in the supply chain told me about it, and I went out there and I trooped out there. And sure enough, it's a relatively small facility with about 100 engineers. And what they are doing is getting down to the fundamental level of display technology, including the manufacturing process. A lot of display technology is about how you actually put the display together. It's chemical engineering, it's electrical engineering, it's physics, a lot of different things are involved. Apple is spending the time and energy with their own team trying to develop that technology so that in future, they won't be dependent on companies like Samsung anymore. They'll be able to own the technology and they'll basically be able to outsource the assembly part of it or the lower level stuff to another company, such as maybe Taiwan's AUO or Interlux or Sharp or Japan Display or anybody they like. They won't have to rely on the leading-end technology that's developed by someone like Samsung. So that's what we're going to see in future, more and more of Apple doing its own technology so they don't have to be relying on anyone. So what are the biggest risks and troubles Apple will face as they get closer to the launch date and then after the products are being launched then? So clearly the biggest one will be component supply. We know, for example, that if you think about the bill of materials, which is basically the list of ingredients that goes in there, You've got the NAND flash, you've got the display itself, which we've talked about. We've also got the CPU or the APU, which looks like it's going to be made by TSMC. So it's designed by Apple, but it's manufactured by TSMC. Any of those components, they're kind of hard to swap out, not easy to suddenly find someone else. So really, the risk would be that, for example, TSMC has some problem and won't be able to supply the chips or there will be a problem with the design or the manufacturing of the chips. I've heard no indication that that will be the case, that there will be a problem, but that is a risk. And then, of course, there's risks in the assembly, whether or not, you know, there's any kinds of problems in the supply chain at the assembly level, whether Foxconn or Pegatron or anybody else can get enough labor in there or that they can put the product together. And then really the the final problem they've got to be careful of, and this is what we saw last with Samsung is quality control. Apple has a really, really good track record and very good reputation on quality control. But that doesn't mean they're perfect. Antenna Gate of all those years ago when they claimed that there wasn't a problem with antenna, 
that there really was. That's a good example of that, where it really probably wasn't tested as well enough, and so it got through those quality control gaps. Samsung is another reminder last year with the battery problems that you can make the product really, really well, and it can come out of the other end. You can be ready to put it in a box, but unless you've done really good quality control, it's possible for a bad product to get in the hands of consumers. So that's really another risk for Apple. I've never really felt that Apple will have a problem in that area, but you never know. We never thought Samsung would have a problem, and then suddenly they did. So they're really some of the risks that you that Apple will be sure to keep an eye on to try and manage and eliminate. So I guess it's continuing to watch now since it's now May, so we have another three more months, and there's going to be much more speculation. And of course, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show to talk about this really interesting piece about the supply chain, but related to Apple products, but involved a lot of the Asia OEMs. So help my audience, Tim. How do they find you? Well, I'm on Twitter. That's the easiest way. So it's at T Culpin, T-U-L-P-A-N. Uh, that'd be the easiest way. You're certainly welcome to follow me. And if you follow me after hearing Bernard's podcast, just uh, tweet me a hello and tell me that you found me via Analyze Asia so I know how you found me. Okay, you can find me at bleongcwrbernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and tune in on, of course, Google Play in the US market. Recommend us on Overcast or give us a five-star on iTunes. And of course, give me any comments. Just tweet to me. That, that would be great. So once again, Tim, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Bernard. It's been great.